The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. U.S. jobless claims for last week plummeted to the lowest level since the start of the pandemic. The U.S. is heading to seeming a labor shortage or something resembling that, at least faster than we think. The Fed trying to foster, quote, broad and inclusive labor market recovery. This means businesses need to be prepared to find talent wherever it can be found. Now, there are 19 million people in America with felony convictions and the millions more with misdemeanors who are largely untapped, underutilized workers. They are outside the labor force, unemployed, or they're employed well below their ability to contribute to the economy. Investment professional Jeff Korzenik, who usually talks to us about markets, has long been passionate about this subject and is the author of a new book, Untapped Talent, How Second Chance Hiring Works for Your Business and the Community. Jeff joined us to talk about what he learned while writing this book, and we started by asking him what the number one thing people should know about in finding this untapped talent. Sure. Number one thing is to recognize that people with criminal records should not be the employee of last resort, but when sourced right and supported appropriately, they can actually be superior employees. That's the message. We've heard this message from other folks. How do you get that message through, though, Jeff, uh, to uh, employees specifically, employers, I should say, uh, and more importantly, I guess, to a general public that I think still seems to be skeptical of anyone who spent time in prison? Yeah, no, it's it's going to be a long haul. And the uh, one of the reasons I wrote the book was simply to guide people uh, the employers so that they didn't have to make the mistakes of others. There's a right way to do this. There's a wrong way to do this. And the the truth of the matter is you can't sugarcoat this. The majority of people who served the prison term were there for serious crimes, uh, usually crimes of violence, often crimes of property, uh, and yes, drugs uh, as well. And uh, that doesn't mean, though, that they are irredeemably bad people or can't be great employees. So there is this uphill battle. One of the Mm. things that I focused on is showing the example of other employers, because I think there's nothing like one employer seeing the positive experience of another employer. I think that helps uh, quite a bit. Yeah, talk to us about those experiences. You say like this has to be business, not charity to be scalable. Who is doing it right in a business like Mm. manager? So it's often middle market companies because they don't have all the resources. They may not be the employer first uh, uh, first choice in a given marketplace. They may not be able to redirect their uh, employment to other geographies in the company in the country. But you find some really great uh, companies. So, uh, for instance, in Philadelphia. 
superstores. Jeff Brown runs a chain of grocery stores. 600 of his 2,500 employees are second chance hires. We've seen similar uh, successes in Michigan. Cascade Engineering has about 1,200 employees. Hundreds of them have been through their welfare to career program. And then one of the masters of this is a company called Nehemiah Manufacturing in Cincinnati. They're, they were the subject of Harvard Business School's first and only case study of a second chance employer. 130 of their 180 employees are second chance. All of these are for-profit companies. So, Jeff, I started this segment pointing out that this, this dovetails with what we're hearing from the Fed. Spread the benefits of employment to as many, uh, as, as, as wide as possible. What do you think needs to happen on the sort of, like, national policy front? I mean, your book is targeted towards uh, businesses, but from a national policy perspective, what can accelerate this and make this uh, go even faster and better? Well, first of all, it's very difficult to do this nationally because most of the criminal justice laws that could uh, that are actively interfering with employment are state legislation. So this is a long slog of mm. battle. But fortunately, there's some great nonprofits and think tanks that are taking up this charge. But the starting point, uh, and this can be a national message, is that the old paradigm of you're either soft on crime or you're tough on crime is wrong. What you should be is strong on public safety and strong on giving people opportunities, and those go hand on, in hand. Very often, our tough on crime laws actually interfere with the ability of people to get hmm. employed or stay employed. Now, this week was a landmark one for crypto. Coinbase, the largest U.S. cryptocurrency exchange, went public with a direct listing on the NASDAQ. Shares opened at $381 and traded as high as $429.54 in its debut on Wednesday, giving Coinbase a valuation above $112 billion. But then shares slipped back below its opening price as Bitcoin fell from record highs and tech stocks fell across the board. And so we got some perspective on what this listing meant for the larger cryptocurrency space with the chief executive of one of Coinbase's competitors, Catherine Coley. She is the CEO of Binance.us, the U.S. branch of the largest crypto exchange in the world. And she joined us to talk about the competitive landscape. And we started by asking her if this would be a multi-winner space. Collectively, we share a mutual mission to bring more Americans into the space and access financial freedom. So we were all applause all around with our team, cheering on the Coinbase team, <laughs> making making huge strides in the industry. As you said, it's been a mocked industry, and yet we've seen validation after validation yeah. with institutional customers coming in, companies going public, really huge milestones that are quite remarkable across the space. So, so now with Coinbase out there in the public markets, that brings with it, Catherine, of course, a lot more scrutiny, uh, rightly or wrongly, about the company's fundamentals and, of course, about a correlation to the actual price swings in Bitcoin itself. I am curious, when you look at the volatility that we see in crypto and you're trying to run an actual company of, uh, that's based on the fundamental returns of how much you earn uh, in this space here, do those correlations maybe come back to bite you, I guess? That's one way to look at it, but we really welcome the success and think there's so much room in this space for users to explore the many options that they have when it comes to entering the digital frontier. You saw those great Q1 numbers from Coinbase. And to put things in perspective, I'll run through a little bit of what Binance US did these, this past quarter. Please. We, uh, we, we happened to uh, 4X our registered users on the platform from the end of 2020, which was remarkable, considering we also saw a 10X increase 
in trading volume, crushing over $1.3 billion trading just today alone, an all-time high for us, which is about 25% of Coinbase's global volume in total. So, so when you look at that from a perspective, yeah. year on year, that's a 190x increase of activity, trading activity taking place that Binance US has been able to welcome in in America. So if you're looking and curious if there's room for more, the answer is absolutely yes. And if you're curious at who's coming into this space, yeah. well, we, well, we do see institutions coming in with fervor and excitement. We just launched our institutional page, welcoming more of our folks uh, that are from my old world of Morgan Stanley and traditional hedge funds. But we also cater so much to those in need of accessing digital assets. We saw an 1,100% increase in our most simple trading platform for buying and selling crypto. So and that is really remarkable to see that much growth in Q1. So when you talk about institutions, how much of that is, say, okay, some institution wants to just maintain as a part of their portfolio some, uh, some slug of crypto versus hardcore hedge funds, traders, et cetera, that want to get into a new asset class that's extremely volatile and so therefore extremely uh, exciting and fun to trade and potentially a lot of profit opportunities. What's the split in terms of what you see when you say institutional trading? Well, it'd be quite rude to generalize their strategy. So you've got a significant amount of diversity in that institutional class, which we cater to all of that. Whether you're a high frequency trader, whether you're interested in purely arbitrage, whether you're, whether you're coming in for a buy and hold considering your treasury. These are all parts of our business that we build out for. Understanding the sophistication levels and strategies of customers coming in needs to be as broad, but also as welcoming as possible to make sure that we have healthy markets. So I'd be keen to understand really who's coming into this space. We saw a lot of family offices, a lot of big macro players trading with their personal accounts and coming in and those are excited, but they're following more of the trends, momentum trading, just like they had been in other asset classes. Whereas those taking advantage of these liquid markets and fast-moving volatility, those guys are absolutely coming in and trading in much more size every day. So what's the future for Binance? Um, you want to tell us when you're having your IPO right now? <laughs> <laughs> I, if I had a crystal ball, I, I would already uh, be sending out the yeah. confetti. But uh, for us, building process is still in place. It's really just the beginning of what's mm. being done. I'm incredibly proud of our team in the last two years to make this much stride in the market that people had dubbed was saturated or over, you know, over, uh, overbuilt with uh, crypto exchanges. There's obviously a clear need for more Americans to understand this asset class and get access to it. So by championing the success of others in this space and, and considering we can, we can still build this together, yeah. we, we set ourselves out to be the most accessible and approachable platform, delivering recurring buys, purposefully low trading fees, and all powered by cutting edge technology that really can handle the growth that's ahead. So that's great, and I, I, I take you at your word that you're very happy for a competitor and everyone wins and it's more attention. But what is the pitch? when you, If someone is interested in crypto and they have many options, Coinbase is the most well-known, what is the key way that you see Binance US uh, differentiating yourself and what can you say about the type of person who uh, ends up opening up an account at Binance.us versus Coinbase? For me, it's simple. I don't like to pay fees on things that are digital that are going to be involved in my life on a routine basis. Paying away 2% on management fees or even just on costly fees is it really takes away the excitement for this space and the utility in, in how I look at it. So when it comes down to fees, that's what I'm looking for first. The next, I really want to make sure that the platform is built with a market-minded individual behind it. 
So the idea that we've built this understanding where traders are coming from, understanding where traders are going to be going into, that's really critical. You'll see that in our technical analysis that we provide. You'll see that in our API having extensive amounts of work for most of our algo traders. And that really is critical to make sure that we're building this in an asset class that's going to be able to be nimble as we see it evolve over the next years ahead. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. And we also got reaction to the Coinbase from Roshan Patel. He's the vice president of institutional lending at Genesis. Genesis is a full-service digital currency prime brokerage that is the world's largest digital asset lender and provides a single point of access for global high net worth and institutional investors, as well as two-sided liquidity for buyers and sellers of digital assets. We started by asking Ro about an interesting Bitcoin trade that is seemingly free money. And I don't just mean buying it and waiting it for it to go up. If you check out the chart, there's a difference between the spot price of Bitcoin and what it trades at on the exchanges in the futures market. So I started by asking Ro if he would uh, lend me money to buy Bitcoin at spot and short the futures to capture that spread. Hey, hey thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, you know, regarding the base trade and kind of lending cash against Bitcoin as collateral, that conversation we've been having a ton more, you know, recently, uh, especially leading up to this IPO. Which yeah. Is, such a monumental day for the space at large. Uh, in short, yes, okay. uh, that is uh, you know a large source of our uh, demand to borrow cash, and it's uh, it's a big reason for for sort of the the demand you see in institutional lending and crypto for cash. All right. Well, I know you. I know crypto has become a real asset when you can do a basis trade off of it. I am curious, though, about the risk involved in something like that when you have uh, a lot more volatility on the underlying than what you would have maybe in some of the traditional basis trades here. How do you smooth that out to make sure that, you know, Genesis doesn't get left holding the bag? Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, with the basis, uh, the this is kind of the thread I, I touched on on Twitter and Joe sort of followed up on it. You know, there's a couple of risks that come into play, especially when you're talking about the CME. One of the largest ones there is the margin requirement. So, you know, when you're shorting futures on CME, you're required to post around 40% of the collateral in cash. As the price of Bitcoin goes up, mm. that cash margin requirement could be prohibitively expensive. It's a lot easier to do the trade from the other side in, in many ways, where the future is trading below the spot price. And, you know, Genesis has been around since 2018, lending in crypto. Um, you know, our first sort of borrowers were really Bitcoin borrowers for posting cash collateral to us, sort of the inverse of what's going on now. And that uh, that trade has has uh, has evolved a lot to be now the inverse. So, um, you know, kind of the way you think about it is, you know, if the price were to go up quite a bit, you could you could really lose out on a lot of margin. And then if right. it widens out relative to your collateral, it could be it could be pretty, uh, pretty bad for you. So that's that's one of the major risks, among so others. So obviously, it's a pretty big step for the industry for a company like Coinbase to go public, institutional acceptance. What do we need to see still on a sort of like market structure infrastructure basis to, to close that spread so that it becomes easier to, uh, to actually do these trades and not face so much execution risk? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there's two major aspects to sort of the solving the 
the issue around how do these spreads compress. The first one is physical delivery of futures. Right now, a lot of the futures products out there, especially the CME ones, are sort of, uh, cash settled. So what that means is you settle to like a one hour average price at the, at the end of the quarterly future window. That introduces some issues with how much size can really be thrown at the trade. The second is the margin requirement, which is you need to have coin be able to be used as margin. And that's a feature in some of the offshore platforms, but it's not one that's like a direct point of access for right. the crypto market. So those are two of the major issues, I would say. And um, yeah, we'll see kind of how that how that evolves over time. I, I have no idea how it's going to uh, kind of move forward. Ro, do you anticipate seeing that more uh, traditional financial institutions maybe try to get into this, try to hone in on this side of the business, offering uh, effectively, I guess, what you're offering, uh, but maybe with a scale that you don't necessarily have at the moment? Yeah, I think um, Genesis has done a really good job about uh, catering to a lot of the people that do this trade. Right now, a lot of the inbound that we're getting right now is more on the education side of how the trade works. But prior to that, for years, uh, you know, the reason we're the largest institutional lender in the space is we've been catering to the firms that are doing this for quite some time and are very nimble and able to do it. So mm -hmm. part of what we're doing right now is education. We have the capacity to do it. And you know, we're looking forward to more and more people uh, engaging in the trade. Um, I do think ultimately at some point, some of the large banks and whatnot might offer it, but we'll see kind of how they fare relative to a place like Genesis when we've already been involved in the space and kind of uh, already facilitating the trades with, with multiple billions of dollars of transactions. So people have actually t been talking about this basis trade for years and it's been well understood and sort of known within the, uh, you know, the crypto community and probably not many people outside of it paying real attention. Have you seen a change lately in the awareness of this opportunity? And what kind of clients now are looking into it uh, as a uh, opportunity to like essentially pick up pick up some yield in a yield-starved world? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's evolved quite a bit over time. I mean, in 2018, you had a pretty much a, a pretty vicious bear market where the futures were trading at a discount to stop ah, yeah. the whole way through. So that introduced a lot of the sort of traditional finance guys that were early in crypto uh, thinking about, uh, or early in really just thinking about the space and looking at CME, they were like, well, you know what, let's try to borrow a spot. Where do we do it? Genesis seems like the only spot I could really do it uh, and then kind of take the inverse. Now, the other side of it is a cash denominated trade. So a lot of people have a lot of cash. So what you're seeing is like more traditional financial firms that really might not know much about Bitcoin or really care to even hold it, setting up more SPV type structures or more you know, specific types of basis funds that are coming in and trying to close the spread and do it all OTC and, and get a lot of the sort of cross margining that Genesis offers um, to kind of make the trade a little bit more uh, friendly from a from a user perspective or from a client perspective. So yeah, the client base has definitely evolved over time. Um, we'll see kind of uh, how it how it continues to evolve, but it's definitely a broader conversation for sure. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, this week, I discovered my new favorite asset class. The first thing I've been checking each morning is lumber prices. Lumber futures keep rising day after day after day, and they've surged more than 60% to record highs this year. Now, you'd think you were looking at, well, the price of Bitcoin. 
The frenzy is likely to keep going through the summer, which is the peak season for U.S. home building. Inventories are already lean, and lumber suppliers simply cannot keep up with the skyrocketing home demand. So to learn more about what's going on in the space, we spoke with Stinson Dean, the CEO of Deacon Lumber Company. We started by asking Stinson to explain his role in the space. Yeah, in the supply chain, uh, I'm a trader, so I almost provide liquidity to sellers when they need to sell and to buyers when they need to buy our market futures and the, the cash market is fairly illiquid. So I stand in between mm. and uh, I try to buy low and sell high um, nice. on the uh, price of lumber. Stinson, how much harder has your job of making any sort of liquidity been when just everyone wants to buy and supply is so thin? It's tough. Uh, sourcing product right now is it's it's not about the price. Price is just kind of a by, byproduct of what's happening fundamentally. And if you can get your hands on it, uh, you're going to buy it no matter what the number is. And the numbers are getting higher and higher. Futures have a, a daily limit. But in the cash market where I trade, uh, there is no limit. And prices are going up significantly uh, in a way that no one's ever seen before, certainly from just the flat price, but also the daily jumps. And and what's happening is builders and their suppliers, I think, waited for a dip because $1,000 lumber is ridiculous. <laughs> and they waited and they waited and, hey, I'm going to buy the dip. Meanwhile, they were selling and committing themselves to deliver lumber. Well, they waited long enough. The mills were able to hold out. Now they have to cover uh, those commitments to builders. And builders have to cover their commitments to home buyers. So they have no choice but to mm. buy the lumber right now. Um, and well, the, they do have a choice. Yeah. They could either not buy the lumber and default on their commitment and lose their customer yeah. uh, or pay whatever it takes to get this one covered and try again the next time. So go back and talk about uh, the, the idea that some of these folks are waiting, because we heard this a lot uh, several months ago when uh, this really started to rear its head with regards to home builders. There are a lot of people that are sort of waiting for the market to sort of right size itself, right? The idea here that some of the shortages are more due to COVID and more due to some uh, just temporary or transitory issues, as the Fed would say. I mean, after all, there's no there's no shortage of trees out there. It's just a matter of, of getting them cut down and getting them down to the mills. Do you anticipate a right-sizing mm. of the market in any tangible way soon? Uh, well, there's, there's a few things. Kind of in the weeds here in lumber, you really got to focus on the Canadian forests. Mm -hmm. And there is not an abundance of trees up there that the government is willing to be cut. Uh, they, they actually reduced... Most of the forced, forced uh, land up there is owned by the government, and they reduced the allowable cut a few years ago because they saw the pace of logging wasn't sustainable for the health of that forest. Um, and homes from Phoenix to Charlotte are built with Canadian lumber behind the drywall. So really, it's a structural problem uh, with a shortage of trees or logs and uh, it, it, this is like COVID fast-tracked a lot of trends in our economy. One of the trends was a reduced fiber basket in Canada. And uh, the, the mills had a, had a really tough year in 2019. If you look at lumber prices, they stayed depressed for a long time. So they had low lumber prices, pretty mediocre housing market, and a 23% tariff. So a bunch of mills permanently shut down in 2019, 
when prices were at $300 per thousand board foot on the future screen. And now here we are, you know, quadruple. Um, it'd be really nice if we could have some of those mills back. Maybe some of them survived if we didn't have a tariff. But by and large, stepping back, the issue is fiber supply in Canada, which is why they've invested in, in Southern Yellow Pine mills and production in the U.S. But you know, it, it, again, this is getting in the weeds, but the Southern Yellow Pine stick is not the same as a Canadian or Pacific mm. Northwest mm -hmm. piece of lumber. Like they're not as inter interchangeable as you think. So there, there's a bigger structural problem. And until, yeah, to me, the futures curve is gonna tell you the answer. We're in the steep record setting backwardation where the front months are trading at an extreme premium uh, to uh, deferred months. And a lot of people look at that and say, okay, down the line, futures say prices are gonna be cheaper. Right. When in fact, yeah. in fact, it's the opposite. That's the most bullish structure you can have. So yeah. until that curve normalizes, uh, I don't see a, a, a correction per so se. What would normalize it? I mean, you know, I, I guess there has got to be some law of economic gravity every day. A market just can't keep going limit up, limit up, limit up. Whether it's some sort of slowdown in the pace of buying, some sort of expansion of capacity, some sort of swapping, perhaps, of builders maybe opting for less lumber or a different material for their building. Like when uh, what? What, in your view, could make it start to balance out a little bit? It, it's a demand side problem. Supply side can't fix it. Okay. Clearly, you know they would they would have fixed it at seven hundred dollars per thousand. So, once the builders, once we start hearing from home builders that we cannot pass these costs along, then you'll see the you know the the economics one hundred and one price correction. But I think, and a lot of us in the industry think, lumber has just been underpriced for a while. Hmm. When lumber was at 900 per thousand, which at the time, this last fall, at the time was earth shattering, NAHB came out and said it increased the price of a home $16,000. And I'm sitting here thinking that's not that much, really, over 30 years. And now, you know, the new data at the newer price is 24,000. Um, so at some point, the build that those big builders are the ones that that matter single family homes not apartments single family homes drive the price of lumber and until they say i cannot pass these costs along uh I, we're going to be higher for longer now i think there'll be innovation uh how we use lumber more effectively in building plans um framing packages but as far as like a new disruptive technology I, there's not much on the horizon hmm to help this kind of acute uh, shortage we have going on. Have people been hedged? Have people been sort of making an awful lot of money by not being, like, who's winning out of this situation who you might not automatically think apart from the people selling wood right now? <laughs> well, uh, the ones selling wood aren't necessarily winning depending on where their risk is. If they're forward committed at a fixed price and they're buying second, uh, their margins margins are getting squeezed. That's both vendors, home builders. Um, so I think spec home builders who don't have a, a price locked in with a customer and then they build, they're doing fine. And then certainly the sawmills are doing great. Um, and after that, uh, it's it's when you're in this type of market, you're kind of unless you're a producer, you're getting if you're making money, you're kind of lucky. Like this. The, the, the swings are so big, we could fall 50%, 50% and still be higher than we ever have been in 60 years of lumber futures. Wow. We fall 50% today. 
And so a guy like me, I hedge aggressively because I have massive downside risk and I'm able to sell my lumber above and beyond my hedge losses. Um, so I'm still making modest gains, but but lumber is notoriously mm. full of cowboys that don't manage risk mm. aggressively. Mm. And yeah. if you if you can source the lumber, you're making a whole bunch of money right now because it's yeah. just it, the price is not the issue it, right. for, in, in the immediate term. It's the scarcity. And that's it for what you missed this week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.